Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU. Freeform Station of the Nation. Coming at you live from downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. Thanks to DJ Jim Price for uh, bringing me on to do a little upcoming segment in uh, one of his mic breaks in the last half hour. I really enjoyed the three-hour version of Jim Price's show. And I appreciate you showing up this evening or this afternoon or in the future, wherever you are. As I speak to you live, we are celebrating Memorial Day here in the United States. Happy Memorial Day if you're here and, uh, and celebrating. And uh, last week's episode was rather intense, I know. Um, if you missed it and would like to uh, take a listen, you can uh, go to WFMU.org and go into the archives, or you can go to the Tectonic site at techtonic.fm. That's a one-page site with all of our uh, recent shows, and you can go back and listen to that uh, talking about, well, you, you'll hear. I, I don't need to get into the, uh, into the depths of, of that topic. It, it had to do with social media and uh, big tech business models and what happened in Buffalo. And then last week we had yet another tragedy uh, in Texas. And I'm not going to get into that, but I just want to acknowledge that it's a, it's a difficult moment here in the United States, and I, uh, I expect I will be returning to those topics on a future show to talk about the uh, Silicon Valley business models and the uh, takeover, or really the acceleration of current media trends that have created an environment uh, that is ripping the social fabric apart and, and helping to uh, set the stage for those terrible events that we're seeing. Having said that, uh, that I will probably return to this topic in the future, I want to shift gears because I'm, I'm really uh, excited to share an interview with you that's on a very different topic. And it's a, uh, it's a, it's a positive topic, if I may uh, contrast it with last week's show. This is about books and reading and independent bookstores. My guest this evening is Jeff Deutsch, who is the director of the Seminary Co-op Bookstores. It's a pair of bookstores in Chicago that have been around for a long time. And Jeff has just come out with a new book called In Praise of Good Bookstores. And we're going to we're going to talk about what what does it mean to have a good bookstore and what is the significance of good bookstores beyond what happens within their walls, but what is the significance to the community and how can one uh, make a, a good bookstore survive in, 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 a, in an economy that's dominated by a certain company that wants to sell you books and everything else, which we do get into briefly um, after asking Jeff for permission to say the name. <laughs> so I'm going to play you this interview with Jeff Deutsch and then... Um, I have a few more comments afterwards uh, about books. Bef just before I get into this, I, I want to acknowledge one author in this, this great book, In Praise of Good Bookstores, one author that Jeff Deutsch brings up a number of times throughout the book is John Ruskin, who was a writer who wrote on many different topics. We wrote on society and art and um, ethics and wrote, wrote many books. He was an English author uh, in the 19th century. And there is a book he wrote called Sesame and Lilies, which, by the way, is one of uh, Marcel Proust's favorite books by John Ruskin. But I'm not going to get into the Proust rabbit hole either tonight, much as I might like to with books as our theme. But there is one particular quote from John Ruskin, which uh, is important in our interview, and you'll hear by the end of the interview why. And let me read you this, this quote from John Ruskin from Sesame and Lilies. For all books are divisible into two classes, the books of the hour and the books of all time. Mark this distinction. It is not one of quality only. It is not merely the bad book that does not last and the good one that does. It is a distinction of species. There are good books for the hour and good books and good ones for all time, bad books for the hour and bad ones for all time. 
And so this, this idea of books for the hour and books for all time comes up in my interview with Jeff Deutsch as he uh, played with that idea in his book, In Praise of Good Bookstores. That quote, by the way, that I just read you from John Ruskin, that is engraved in bronze. Well, not really engraved, engraved but, but sets. I don't know what the right uh, word is, but it's cast in bronze, I guess is the right word. And you can see it if you go to the New York Public Library in Manhattan, uh, just outside the New York Public Library on East 41st Street. This is, that's the street leading to the main entrance uh, between the two lions. You can see a set of quotes. It's, it's called Library Way, and there are a set of quotes from famous authors uh, in, cast in bronze plaques on the sidewalk on East 41st Street. And what I just read you is one of them, and you can find it on the playlist at WFMU.org. I put a... Put a um, uh, a, a photo of that bronze plaque on the playlist. Actually, the playlist at WFMU.org, click playlist and comments from the homepage. That is also where we are having a live listener chat during the show. You can join in that. And let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Jeff Deutsch here on Tectonic on WFMU. Jeff Deutsch, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a privilege to have you on, Jeff. I really enjoyed reading your new book, In Praise of Good Bookstores. I want to just add, there's no subtitle on this, unlike every other book I've had on this show. <laughs> it's just In Praise of Good Bookstores. That's it. Uh, and it's Correct. and it's well titled. Although, as much as I love this book, I thought it's a clever title because it does praise good bookstores, as promised, but it goes a lot further than that as well. You're also praising booksellers and the people who go to bookstores, the browsers and the buyers, and you're praising books themselves, and you're praising the act of reading, and finally, you're praising what kind of community we can build through better engagement with books, which we'll get to. But just a a lyrical and thoughtful book uh, that I really appreciated. So thanks for putting the time in to write that. Thank you so much for saying that. And I will, I will say you're an excellent reader for, for finding all of those things in there. The idea of it being a celebration above all really was, that was the point of writing it. Yes. And you, you do say at one point, this book is not a lamentation. Exactly. And by that point in the book, it, it's already pretty apparent. You're, this is a, <laughs> A, this is a love letter to books okay. and everything around books. And as a as a book lover myself, it was such a pleasure to read this. Um, you write about the different types of bookstores. Your title, In Praise of Good Bookstores, is explicitly talking about a very specific kind of bookstore that you term good. And while you don't disparage any bookstores or bookstore chains out there, you do note that there are gradations of quality in the financial requirements that some bookstores are bending to. They're treating wisdom handed down from ancestors on the same level as the latest cookbook, just based on the amount of money they bring in. And they're finding that they can't make enough money to survive. And so they have to add other products that are not books. And I'm mm -hmm. not going to name any bookstores, but I have seen this, exactly mm -hmm. what you're talking about. There was an industry term for the non-book tchotchkes that mm -hmm. the bookstores have yeah, to side sell. Lines. Sidelines, they call them. Sidelines. Side right. So how should people feel or how should they think about a bookstore that is perhaps not one of the good ones to the term that you used in the book, but are still worthwhile to go into if they want to buy a book, certainly better than going online to a certain place mm -hmm. to buy a book. Mm -hmm. How should people feel about their experience or how should they navigate their experience as they walk into a bookstore that is cluttered with these sidelines? 
Yeah. Um, great. They should feel great about it because the bookstore still exists. And I personally, and I, I write about this, I, I've personally um, ran bookstores that have done that. Uh, and that's how they make a living. And, and whatever it takes to make a living, that's great. Um, and I want to, I'll talk a little bit about what a good bookstore is and isn't. Um, and some of those stores you're describing, including the Strand, I was just at the Strand two weeks ago. It, uh, ton of tchotchkes when you walk in. It's a great bookstore. It's not, it's, it's not the platonic ideal of a good bookstore that I'm describing, but it is a great bookstore store with tchotchkes. So I want to, I want to be clear about that. Uh, well, you know, here's the thing about book selling. Um, it's not retail. Uh, it's not retail. It resembles retail, but it's not retail. And the difference is critically important. What merchants are, what retail is, uh, it's someone who buys and sells. We buy cheap and we sell dear. And the idea behind it is that we can maximize the profits by buying cheap, selling dear, honoring the supply chain, which is something that certain online retailers don't do, but then providing for their community. And it's just like a, a physician. It's a critically important uh, role that we play. And so retail is great. No problems with retail. But we cannot buy cheap and sell dear. We can't source the way one might be able to source socks from anywhere and uh, either have higher quality or lower quality, compete on price, compete on service. There is one place that, in my book, for instance, is Princeton University Press. It's the only place you can buy it. It's 19.95 on the cover. Uh, you can't sell it for more or less. If you're in San Francisco, California, or Osceola, Arkansas, it's the same price. Cost of living doesn't matter. We can't, uh, you know, we don't have uh, adjustments in that way. So it's really not retail full stop the book business is not retail um, but the idea of selling sidelines in order to make it work great that's what we have to do in, in you know right now there's a question that's asked it's an existential question that uh, is asked in the beginning of the book that I've been asking of booksellers and publishers for the last 10 years uh, and many of us are asking which is no reader needs a bookstore in the 21st century to buy books and no bookstore can make a living selling books alone which is why the sidelines or any other you know, number of other ways people bring in revenue, including real estate or cafes or things like that. First of all, do we even need bookstores? And second of all, if we do, how are we financing them? And I am one of hundreds of people in the industry asking these questions. Okay, so maybe we should talk about who you are professionally. Um, in addition to writing this this very beautiful and, and thoughtful book in praise of good bookstores, you are the director of a bookstore, or rather, I guess, two bookstores. You're right. the director of, in Chicago, the Seminary Co-op Bookstores, which you've been working with for a number of years. You can tell us a little bit about that. But I, I just want to note that in 2019, you helped incorporate the Seminary Co-op Bookstores as the first not-for-profit bookstore whose mission is bookselling. Right. Tell us about seminary co-op bookstores, why they're unique and what your role is there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in 2014, I came here from the Stanford uh, University Bookstore, took over as the director of these two stores, the so Seminary Co-op and 57th Street Books, or it's one uh, entity. It was a member-owned cooperative when I started. And by that, it was it's a consumer-owned cooperative. So there were 60,000 or so members. Uh, Barack and Michelle Obama were members, Susan Sontag, Saul Bellow, Eve Ewing, all these incredible writers and, and, and thinkers, as well as community members. And I, I was naive. I thought, well, I'll come and I'll talk to the, the members and say, oh, just buy one more book, buy two more books. We'll, we'll you know, 50,000 people will... We'll make it. And at that point, it was teetering. It was about to go out of business. Uh, Stanford's bookstore will not go out of business. They will survive for the next 100 years because the university believes in the store and supports it. And it's a wonderful bookstore. Um, I immediately was disillusioned by this notion that uh, a store can make it as, as a bookstore can make it as a retail environment in the 20. Uh, 21st century, and I've been going to these stores since 1994, uh, and and I knew then what I know now, which is that they are, as far as I'm concerned, the platonic ideal of a bookstore. They're also singular in this sense that they carry not just books, only books, no tchotchkes, but academic books, books that sell slowly, books that just sit on a shelf that no one else would have on the shelf, and that the world needs a place like this, and no one would have built it intentionally. No one could have built it intentionally. It just kind of happened. And if we lost it, we will lose the opportunity to keep it going. Can I just, can I interrupt Please. you? Just that phrase, and you, you write quite a bit about what makes Seminary Co-op so unique for those reasons, that it it's totally unreasonable that this would <laughs> ever have 
survived, let alone right. ever been planned. And as I was reading this praise for Seminary Co-op, I thought, this sounds exactly like how we talk about WFMU. I mean, <laughs> exactly. here's a radio station and a community, uh, you know, a community of listeners and DJs and hosts, and everyone right. pitches in. And it just, it, this shouldn't exist. I mean, I'm, right. I don't mean shouldn't. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine this existing, except that it does. And somehow it works. Right. And as unreasonable as it is, it's impossible to imagine this community existing without this right. critical institution. That's such a great analog. No, that's exactly right. Well, and, and one thing I'll say is I was at Stanford Bookstore, and I, um, I and before that I was at UC Berkeley's bookstore. So I was, I was in Silicon Valley, uh, and you know, you you obviously think deeply uh, and have been thinking for a long time about tech. But I would watch these undergraduates and graduate students come in, and they wanted their, their first million by the time they were twenty three or twenty five or whatever, and they would bring a deck over to Sand Hill Road and find a venture capitalist with you know twenty pages and leave there with ten million dollars, and me. Meanwhile, we have this institution that's literally a built, it's, it's built, the argument is there, it's an institution that's 60 years old, and we're trying to raise $10 million for an endowment to ensure in perpetuity we can keep it going, and how can those kids, those students, I shouldn't say kids, how can those students oh, you raise can say that kids. $10 million? Okay, good. <laughs> um, you, you clearly don't work on a university campus. <laughs> so, uh, right. I get myself in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to, uh, so $10 million is, it's not that much money, it's nothing. And you say WFMU, and um, as as you know, I, mean, I grew up in New York. I listened to FMU for uh, as, as a kid and loved it, uh, and I couldn't agree more. I love hearing you say that. Um, but think about think about the public libraries. Think about like the, you know, pre-Andrew Carnegie, somebody coming in and saying, hey, I, I, I have this idea for how we can build these spaces, uh, and it would be for books, and it would be free. Everything would be free, and we can just put a little money into it. Like, you'd get laughed out of uh, any bank, and yet you have this, and uh, FMU has this, and the co-op has this. These already exist. And then how do we just ensure that not only that these institutions can exist in perpetuity, but maybe we can build a model to support them in any community that would want them. So you, you went from Stanford to Chicago. You started right. uh, at Seminary Co-op. And what was the, it was already teetering. You thought if people would just mm -hmm. buy a couple more books, that'd be fine. Mm -hmm. But it turned out not to be sufficient. So you needed to do, what was the moment when you realized you had to do something different? Right. Well, so we, you know, we were looking at our bylaws and we were looking at the structure and then this gets into some things that I think are critical importance, which is, you know, why do we exist? And, and these, the, the, the actual formation of the institution, uh, the way in which we're incorporated it actually matters. It actually is, it, it, you know, what happens if we incorporate as a not-for-profit and we do so in order to maximize the cultural dividends for stakeholders, i.e. anyone who walks in the door or looks at it and thinks they might want to walk in the door, or any publisher who wants their book or author who wants their book on the shelves? Well, that's a different um, thing altogether. And just like we conflate selling and retail, so book selling is not retail, it resembles it, but it's not, we also conflate nonprofits with tax code. And nonprofits with wealth management, and we are not a 501c3. We're not a 501 anything, because tax code has nothing to do with why we're nonprofit. We're nonprofit because we are not in it to make a profit. Full stop. And we'll pay taxes if we hopefully will have the opportunity to make enough money to pay taxes. Um, but the idea of saying in your uh, incorporation um, bylaws and articles of incorporation actually what you're trying to do as opposed to fitting it into an existing model that is so wrong that it makes it impossible to do what you're meant to do struck all of us the community as incredibly wise if we're going to save this place otherwise we can sell university of chicago sweatshirts all day and make a ton of money and we're not going to do that and so when you went through this reevaluation of your identity and your goals your mission um you incorporated as a not-for-profit. What has happened since then? I mean, did it turn out to be the right decision? Are you still teetering or has it proven <laughs> to be the right thing to do? Time will tell. So this happened November of 2019. And did anything, um, anything, what's happened since November 2019? No, no, nothing. <laughs> no, nothing. Nothing's changed. Right? As it was, as it was. <laughs> uh, it happened in November of 2019. And the book, um, my manuscript was uh, more than half written uh, by the end of February 2020. It would not have been <sighs> written otherwise. But the idea of the manuscript, if I can be like really candid with your audience, it was multifold. The first thing is 
wanting to articulate for those who have not seen our store um, wanting to articulate the idea of this bookstore and to really replicate hopefully if i'm successful replicate the browse replicate the browsing experience uh, right i wander through the stacks i'm pulling books off the shelf on the page and you know sharing quotes from ruskin and you know kenko and uh, the talmudic rabbis and, and these kinds of people trying to you know give a sense of what it means to be in a book line space and what thoughts and emotions arise in the browser that's number one. But number two is um, like any politician or fundraiser, like really trying to get it into the hands of potential donors and say, this is a model. Um, could, you know, do you want to be a part of, of the future of book selling? Do you want to be a part of building a model for the 21st century deliberately? And so we'll find out. I mean, a big part of, of the book is, is really trying to help the community recognize their responsibility for funding these spaces and it's not just individual donors it's municipalities it's private foundations it's uh, you know institutions like you know universities and and others and there are a lot of creative ways to think about it i don't have any answers other than that the seminary co-op is brilliant and it should exist that's my only answer i i agree and having read your book i went ahead and joined it's a, a membership is free so i thought what the heck right. um, great thank you but i know you you had to go through some difficult times in the pandemic because it's not like you have a a giant online business i right. mean you did use the space as a a little fulfillment center essentially mm -hmm. but really the experience that you write so vibrantly about in the book is about the physical space. Right. I really resonated with your description of the, the experience because it put into words what I often feel when I go into a good bookstore uh, or a great one like The Strand, as you say. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned McNally Jackson, which is yep. another bookstore I like here in New York. I find myself just hypnotized for a while, just walking, looking at the titles, occasionally pulling a book off the shelf, and I can easily spend an hour... And I don't even know where the hour went, but it was just, even if I don't buy anything. That's right. And if I do buy something, you give me permission to feel good about that because I already have, <laughs> <laughs> I have bookshelves at home that are groaning under the weight of books right. that I bought right. and intended to read. And you said, no, it's okay to buy more. That's right. That's because exactly right. you write, there are virtues to book ownership. How many books must ripen on our shelves before we are ready for them? I said, exactly. I have books that have been ripening, as you put it, for years. <laughs> That's um, right. Although, That's right. I don't know. Should I? Is there a limit, though? I feel like I should be responsible and read through some of the back catalog <laughs> that I already have. Well, my wife at one point said, one in, one out rule. This is about four years ago. One in, one out rule. And I said, whatever. Whatever you say, as long as I can keep buying books, fine. And that lasted for about a month before. I said, there's just no way. It's not, it's not, it's not natural. We can't do it that way. Um, no, what you're, what you're alluding to is, is really uh, an important point that I, th I don't think I completed about what it means. So we're not retailers, right? And, um, and no reader needs a bookstore to buy books. What do we need bookstores for? And there's a recognition what happened, you're asking you know, kind of what happened that we, we made this decision to go nonprofit. It's a recognition that our product is not the book, uh, which is a really counterintuitive thing to say, but we're not here to sell books. We're here to create a, a brilliant browsing experience uh, that would surprise and delight even the most sophisticated reader, so, you know, someone who thinks that, you know, pays attention to what's coming out, they're still going to find new things. And I personally, I'll go into McNally Jackson uh, myself. I was there recently and I find books that I didn't know existed. And I like that to me is what is what makes a great bookstore. And the idea that it's a physical space to bring people together and have a browsing experience where they can discover books, be delighted by books, be reminded about certain books and have professional booksellers on the other side of the counter who can engage them in a way that no really doesn't happen anywhere else that is the point we were closed for about 500 days during the pandemic and we were very lucky that we didn't have to reopen we were able to have the online sales as you said we got a lot of community funding but we couldn't do our work. Uh, there were ghosts in, uh, in those stacks. Uh, and when we reopened, it was a very tearful weekend when we reopened, uh, the recognition from all of us that, oh, our work resumes because we are not a warehouse fulfillment center. We're not there to sell books at all. That's that if we're only selling books and doing virtual author events, we should shut down. And we're back. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. We are halfway through my interview with Jeff Deutsch. He's the director of the Seminary Co-op Bookstores in Chicago and has come out with a new book called In Praise of Good Bookstores. No subtitle, just In Praise of Good Bookstores. And I really enjoyed reading it, as I think you can tell in the interview. We're going to listen to the second half now. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, where, by the way, listeners are posting their favorite independent bookstores, you can go and list your own favorite independent bookstore at wfmu.org. Click playlist and comments. Now let's go and listen to the second part of my interview with Jeff Deutsch here on Tectonic on WFMU. You write a lot about how good bookstores are not just an interesting location for people to visit and browse on their own. They're really part of the fabric of the community, and they're part of our cultural uh, heritage. Um, And one quote I liked a lot, you wrote, bookstores are scarce because we undervalue them, and good bookstores are scarce because we undervalue our cultural wealth. Our only model of book selling, inherited from traditional retail, overvalues efficiency and neglects a wise inefficiency. I like that phrase, wise inefficiency. You, um, you write in praise <laughs> of inefficiency and uncertainty throughout mm-hmm. this book. This is in great contrast to, as you said, traditional retail, which overvalues efficiency. And Jeff, we have to... I think we're going to have to say the word out loud. We're going to have to say the name out loud. We have to say something about Amazon because you certainly do. Um, Early in the book, you say that Amazon does away with filtration, selection, assemblage, and enthusiasm entirely. You're not pulling your punches here. You go through a short history of books within Amazon and talk correctly about the Amazon business model, which used books as a loss leader, well, as you, and let me just quote you, Bezos chose to devalue books in order to make already profitable merchandise like socks even more profitable. That's not a bookseller. Mm-hmm. You write that Amazon is certainly not a bookseller in devaluing an entire industry devoted to creating cultural, not merely economic value. It reflects an unimaginably Philistine way to turn a profit. Well, there are a couple of things in there. Uh, I, I want to speak to the efficiency and inefficiency piece, um, but I, and I want to speak to the work of book selling. But I'll start with the Amazon uh, point. So first of all, um, you read probably the entirety of like, anything negative in the book. It was you just like gave like out of all all I wrote, that is basically the only critique in there. And, and maybe there's a little bit more about Amazon. And I felt like it was my responsibility to at least touch on it. I prefer not to talk about Amazon for ten thousand reasons. Now there is a great bookseller. Danny Kane, who uh, is uh, one of the owners of the Raven Bookshop in Lawrence, Kansas, who literally wrote the book, How to Resist Amazon and Why, highly recommend it, and he is my rabbi on these issues. But the reason why it's important to say it out loud is they have done a great job of devaluing the book and, and helping consumers feel like they're their friends, which they are, actually. Like, I, you know, I, I, I would never... Uh, shame anyone for buying you know, anything on Amazon or using Prime or using the streaming service because Amazon has become so ubiquitous that it's, it's difficult. Now, I don't. I personally don't. Um, I was devastated when whole, you know, they bought Whole Foods because now I can't shop at Whole Foods. I mean, I will not, like, I don't want to use their search. If there are, like, you know, philanthropies that are using their web services, I get uncomfortable. Like, you know, that said, I wouldn't expect that of anyone, and I am uh, complicit in 10,000 evil things that I just don't know about like other people are. So, so I'm always careful about that, but it's true, and it's horrible, and it's devalued the book. And so uh, I, I will say this is a, a thing. They gave me a gift, though, um, because one of the, the, what you're pointing to is that I'm acknowledging that the work of book selling, since we're not retailers, is that filtration, selection, assemblage, and enthusiasm, and they have none of it. My book, when it was published, uh, I think it might still be the number one seller in uh, international law 
So I'm number one in international law, and they were discounting at 11 cents, which tells you that at 1995, you're not, you're not getting the value that you could get for 1984. Uh, and I thought, huh, that is a gift. Um, and so this is what their algorithms told them. Wait, in praise of good bookstores is the number one seller in international law? Yeah, actually, uh, international finance and law. That's the category that it was number one, and it might still be number one. What? And it has nothing to do with any of it. And so where, where, where is the assemblage and, and the selection? And certainly, if I'm looking for books in international finance and law, and that's number one. Uh, so, you know, I, and that's, I, you know, that's a little silly. But, but the idea yeah. that, that book selling is um, a, a critically important work, I hope to retire from this job. I have been very lucky in my career that I've been able to you know, work in, in bookstores and, and continue to do it. Uh, we, none of us make good money. It's fine. No one makes good money. But is there a profession that we can actually, even if it's just like a, you know, profession like librarians or publishers who are also undervalued and underpaid, but at least it's seen as a profession, uh, that really is a big part of what we're, we're pushing for. And to acknowledge that the work of bookselling is not the retail piece, so it shouldn't just be the margin, but it is things like, you know, consulting. It is things like filtering. It is things like enthusiasm. And so, how do we find ways to create a track where young booksellers can can spend their careers doing it? Um, so, uh, the thing about the wise inefficiency, I want to first of all unequivocally say that. Inefficiency is not a good thing when it comes to retail. If if everything takes longer and we're, um, you know, for for the wrong reasons, we're making you go through three different steps to do something that really should take one step. They used to call it friction in retail. You want to like create, you know, eliminate any friction. I, I'm, we're all for that, and we want great service. We don't like this 20th century model of the surly bookstore clerk, and none of that is, is of interest. The wise inefficiency is it's the thing that slows you down, and it's like it's almost like an adhesive or something that. that is really like the thing that will help you acknowledge, like look up and say, oh, wait, why am I here? I'm here for a reason. And that time can dilate just a little bit and say, this is actually, I didn't come here to just buy a book, get it off the shelf and leave. I came here to slow down and ruminate and uh, you know, daydream a little bit and maybe ask myself a deeper question about what it is to, uh, to be in this space in this time. And that's the wise inefficiency for us. And so, you know, one of the things, if we talk about the, the product being a browse and not the book, there's no good retailer that would let a book sit on the shelf for 270 days on average, which is our average. Uh, the traditional independent bookstore right now, which these are really great bookstores, they keep a book on the shelf for 130 days, and that's longer than certainly an airport bookstore or even uh, Barnes & Noble would, would keep a book on the shelf. Why do we do that? It's inefficient to do that. If we were more efficient, we wouldn't even carry those books, much less let them linger. We do that because if the browsing experience is the product, then that book is earning, earning its keep every time someone lays eyes on it. They don't have to buy it. But when you lay eyes on it, you actually, it's enhancing your experience. And that wise inefficiency is the thing that differentiates a store like ours. And anyone who comes in the door would see it. You can see it at McNally Jackson. You can see it at The Strand. You can see it at Three Lives, which is a very efficient bookstore. Uh, I'm talking about New York stores. Um, but there, throughout the country, we have uh, stores like this. And these booksellers want to do the work this way but we don't have a model to support it financially. Though it does sound like at Seminary Co-op, you have discovered a model that works for you and maybe something that other bookstores or institutions can, can learn from. We're going to find out. So this is new. So we, you know, in November of 2019, we incorporated, um, we have a five-year strategic plan about how to make this actually a thing. Uh, and the book is a part of it. We also have two publishing arms that are a part of it. We have a podcast that's a part of it. We're really trying to shift the rhetoric a little bit, but also acknowledge that just like Bezos did with Amazon, where the, there's a... Um, online channel for book selling that is treated differently and thought of differently. There is now a channel of book selling that's a not-for-profit uh, bookstore whose mission is book selling that might change things. And I don't know if it's going to work. We might not be here in five years, but I know that if we are going to be here in the future, this is the most honest way for us to build deliberately something that we all want. I'll say one more quick thing, which is there are two institutions in the last five years, or maybe I think it's five years, that have supported bookstores and where they traditionally hadn't. One of them is the city of San Francisco. Mayor Ed Lee, uh, before he died, was working on this, and then after he died, they, they put it through, gave $100,000 to the independent bookstores 
in the city because the city had changed so much and, and wanted to show support. And for a municipality to give money for cultural work, not giving money to Bezos to bring in HQ2 or whatever, but for cultural work in order to keep it going, that was a tremendously important uh, uh, signal. And the other thing, and we recently were recipients, and there are other bookstores, uh, I believe, who will be as well, of uh, a grant. We had a no-strings-attached operating fund grant from a private foundation for doing the work that we're doing, that, where they said, this is a public good and we want to support it. And my hope and the hope of other my other colleagues who are thinking about this in the same way is that there could be 50 stores like ours in 10 years and maybe 100 in, in 15 years that's, that are trying to do something different and building deliberately a model that we can actually be proud of the work that we're doing and not be seen as failing as retailers. You're coming up with a model, you're exploring a model that, as you say, may or may not work, but as you say, we'll see. But flipping that to the experience of someone coming into the store, what is the ultimate good here? I, I thought you you wrote something really relevant and meaningful to me that's, that, that goes well beyond books to some of the core themes of this show week to week. Here's what you wrote. The most important things in the world seem impossible to measure. Meaning, knowledge, hope pleasure, reverence, curiosity, beauty, kindness, awe, justice, wisdom, and love. Not everything need be quantified. And I think that's such an important point. And it has come up on previous shows that in this, this age of quantification, because really that's all the computers are doing is counting everything. You, your leadership, and what you're building at Seminary Co-op is a lighthouse that stands for not something simply in opposition to the Amazons. What you're offering and what other institutions can aspire to is something much greater than what the culture of quantification can possibly offer. These things like meaning and knowledge and, and so on. What do you say to other people who are, whether they are visitors to bookstores or listeners to a radio station, or they are people involved in managing and running such an institution, what kind of encouragement can you give them to continue on this path? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's such an astute uh, observation. And I'm honored to the way that you're speaking about all of these ideas and the way that you're working toward them yourself. Um, first of all, I want to say that technology is incredible and the quantification is incredible. And so to me, I think that they, they can coexist very nicely and they should. That quantification has done wonders for us. Um, and so I'm not opposed to any of that. I also, and this is where I, I would diverge from many of my colleagues, I also think Amazon has a responsibility to, but certainly a capability of fixing this in some way. And now it shouldn't be in any one person's hands. However, if they do, but Barnes & Noble, I, I, I should say, Barnes & Noble has recently become a much more a collaborative partner to many. I've always been a fan of theirs for multiple reasons. One is I'm from New York. Two is I got my first job there and they were great to me. And I, I've, I've been a, a fan ever since. But um, the idea that Amazon could actually just put money and resources and attention back into the business of book making, and that's publishers, authors, agents, distributors, booksellers, both independent and not, they owe us that. I mean, they took that money out of the industry. And if they put it back in, they would be off the hook as far as I'm concerned. We could all coexist. The idea about quantification is right. The things that matter most, and this is this is a money question too, and I'm not, this, I have no like anti-capitalist greed for anyone. I'm sorry. You know, there's this whole reluctant capitalist thing that uh, uh, it's a book about booksellers. It's a wonderful book. University of Chicago Press put out 20 years ago. Um, but I'm not even a reluctant capitalist. It's not even about that. We're just doing something different. And the ways in which we might develop our eloquence as qualifiers rather than just the accuracy as quantifiers rather than just systems of quantification that's incumbent upon us uh, we need to do a better job those 23 year olds we're going to sand hill road are doing a great job of communicating value and we're not and that's part of what this book i hope to do with this book but i also would if i were to speak to anyone who hears this and believes in it is to talk about all the things that we're against is just, it's the wrong strategy. There's nothing, there's no reason to do that because 
you can't argue with low prices and efficiency. Uh, you can't argue against Amazon, who to many, they're not booksellers. They're the place where, where you get cat food and your favorite movies for free, for quote unquote free, and your quote unquote free shipping, um, whatever the case. Um, but some of the books that the co-op sells, we sell serious books and it's books of you know, philosophy and literature and uh, you know, poetry and things that where we question the meaning and purpose of life. Those books are bringing us to these exact insights that say, no, actually the reason that we're living is something beyond quantification. It's something beyond, uh, you know, we don't want to just live long lives. We want to live meaningful lives, you know, and, and we don't want to just live in order to maximize wealth or um, any, any other fame or those sorts of things. We want to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And that is clearly uh, a noble pursuit and it's something that we can we have roadmaps for we've inherited these these roadmaps books are the uh, alexander Haymon said this books are manuals for living in the world okay we're almost out of time but i have one more question for you which is a little bit <laughs> self-serving but now sure. that i have you here you write about the role of the bookseller when someone comes into a good bookstore a good bookseller is going to be invisible, but available. If the customer wants to ask what book they should buy, then the bookseller in this very wise way will point them to the book they didn't know they wanted. So here I've got you in these last couple of minutes, Jeff, you know, the inevitable question. Um, on behalf of Tectonic listeners, can you give us a book of the moment and a book for all time? Just, it doesn't have to be the best, but just a recommendation. You're the bookseller. All Tectonic listeners are coming to you and asking, what's a book of the moment and a book for all time that we should take a look at? That is such a great question. Um, I think they're, they're actually both a little bit of both. Uh, and I'm only going to talk about new books. Um, so there's a book of the moment that's called Aftermath that Transit Books just put out by an author, Preeti Tanasia. And it is about the London Bridge bombing in 2019. And that's the part of which is about, it's a book of the moment. It's a response to that. Uh, and it's an incredibly powerful book. Um, and I want, let me preface this by saying that both of the books I'm going to share are genre-defying books. They have basically created their own genre, and so I, I think it, it's, an, it's an interesting thing to note. Booksellers like to put things in categories, but most books don't have categories. You noted astutely that my book doesn't have the subtitle. You know, fiction doesn't need subtitles. It's whatever the title plus a novel. Well, it, it was clear that your book from the very beginning was about international finance and law. Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, so, so there's this book, uh, Aftermath, and it is uh, the author was teaching in the prisons. The uh, author's student ended up killing not only himself, but uh, a couple of other people, including the, a colleague who taught in, in the prisons. And the author, who's a wonderful, wonderful novelist uh, and committed activist and abolitionist questions herself questions language questions her um her complicity her responsibility but all of our complicity and responsibility doesn't let anyone off the hook including the reader but does it in prose that is just exquisite and powerful and no matter what any reader goes into that book thinking they think about these issues they will leave with a deeper understanding of their own thoughts and have challenged it in certain ways and that's from Transit Books, which is a very small press in Oakland, California, and they do wonderful work. There's another book um, that will be out in uh, June called Also a Poet by um, the wonderful author Ada Calhoun, who has written three other books. This is a book about Frank O'Hara and her father, who is Peter Sheldahl, who's the art critic for The New Yorker. And she discovers a bunch of tapes of her father interviewing people who knew Frank O'Hara and finds out that he was working on a biography of O'Hara and never finished it. And she thinks, well, I'll finish it. He can't finish anything. I can finish this book. And she attempts to, and she does not succeed. But along the way, writes this brilliant book about what we owe each other, how we 
you know, love across generations, how we have books, how we think about books um, as ways to connect with others and or not, uh, the ways in which attention equals love, the ways in which we as humans tell each other stories and have responsibilities to each other to tell or not tell certain parts of each other's stories. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal book, and I, I expect it to be uh, you know, on all the top 10 lists at the end of the year, uh, so I highly recommend it. And I think and I think it'll be read a decade from now because what it does for the genre of uh, biography and uh, the personal essay and uh, poetry in general, uh, how it thinks about poetry and art making is something that will be relevant for decades. And that's that's your book for all time. That's my book for all time. Okay, so let's just for the listeners again, I'm I'm going to put links to these books on the playlist. But for those who are just listening, give us yes. the, the the title and the author for each of those two books again. Yes, Aftermath by Preeti Tanasia, and also a poet by Ada Calhoun. And I'm also going to obviously put a link to this superb book in praise of good bookstores by you, Jeff Deutsch. Thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, I hope you'll keep in touch with us here at Tectonic, Jeff, and that you'll uh, come back on the show again soon. It'd be a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 11 minutes of the show. After which, I want you to stay tuned because the Arbitrarium with DJ Arb is saying goodbye for the summer with a special two-hour show. I really like the Arbitrarium, and I'm going to I'm going to miss saying up next is the Arbitrarium <laughs> with DJ Arb. Um, but uh, I hope you'll stay tuned for that because our summer schedule starts in a week. And uh, I'm happy to say that Tectonic will remain for the summer. Uh, same time slot, Mondays at 6 p.m. Eastern. But uh, to say goodbye to the Arbitrarium with DJ Arb, I hope you will stay tuned after this. We just heard my interview with Jeff Deutsch, who just came out with a new book called In Praise of Good Bookstores. No subtitle. And as we talked about in the interview, uh, there are a number of qualities of good bookstores that, that he writes about. And there are some very important uh, there are some very important qualities of good bookstores that make a difference to the communities where they are located. And on the playlist at WFMU.org, we have been having a really good conversation about some of those good bookstores all around the country. Uh, you can go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments, and see the many, I think we now have a couple dozen recommendations from listeners uh, all over the U.S. and some in Canada as well. So we have a bunch of good North American recommendations. If you are listening in the future, you can still post a comment. This comment board is going to be open for a while. You can find the playlist link by going to the one-page Tectonic website at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm and clicking the playlist link for the May 30, 2022 show and list your favorite independent bookstore uh, wherever it is that you, that you live. I'm, I'm genuinely interested, and I think the other uh, community members here on the comment board now and in the future are, going to, uh, are also going to appreciate your contribution. So thanks again to Jeff Deutsch for participating, and I think... Now you understand why I read the John Ruskin quote from Sesame and Lilies at the beginning of the show. As I said, it's, it's in, enshrined in a way in a bronze plaque on East 41st Street in a series of plaques on the sidewalk leading to the, the main entrance of the New York Public Library, an institution that I love very much. And you can see those, uh, the quote from John Ruskin and uh, many other famous authors on the sidewalk in bronze. And Ruskin is writing about uh, books for the hour and books for all time, which doesn't mean good versus bad books. It just means 
books for the hour and books for all time. And that's why I finished the interview by asking Jeff for his pick as a bookseller, as though we were all walking through and browsing the seminary co-op bookstore ourselves uh, as one big group of (laughs) tectonic book browsers together. And we could all ask Jeff all at once, what is a book for the hour and a book for all time? So I've, I've posted links to both of his choices, also a poet, by Ada Calhoun, and Aftermath by Preti Taneja, uh, published by Transit Books, as Jeff said, uh, on the playlist at WFMU.org. I wanted to finish by reading a couple of other quotes from In Praise of Good Bookstores. Gosh, there's a lot of other topics we could have gotten into. Uh, Jeff Jeff Deutsch, got he, he had this beautiful reflection about time and... Talmudic wisdom and commentary on time, especially when is, uh, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but when does the Sabbath actually start? When, when is it? When is the moment when the sun has actually uh, set? And there he has this reflection bringing in various sources and reflecting on time and what, what a pleasure it is to read a book that talks about the the blessings of reading books. And one of those blessings is it increases our temporal bandwidth, as Thomas Pynchon wrote. Um, and you can go back and listen to uh, my interview with Alan Jacobs, where we talked about uh, Pynchon's temporal bandwidth idea. That was another book conversation from, I think, a, a year or two ago. But, uh, but Jeff Deutsch brings up Thomas Pynchon's idea of temporal bandwidth and how reading in print, with a real book, a book that is smelly, as I think Handy Haversack brought up a quote, that is a, brings up possibilities of us expanding our, uh, our engagement with the world, as opposed to the screens and social media and these apps and everything digital that's coming out of Silicon Valley that makes us go faster and faster and faster, and it decreases our engagement with the world. I always think that sitting down on the PATH train as I come here or the New York City subway and I see just two long rows of seats and they're all occupied by people burying their faces in their screens. And yes, I know some people are probably checking a map or maybe they're um, writing something important. I, 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 don't, I don't mean to generalize on everyone, but w- when, I, when I happen to glance down, it's hard to miss some of these things that are on the screens that they're practically jammed in my face too. As I'm standing there and sitting there, you see what is consuming people and it's, and it's, not, it's not good for our society to have everyone burying their face in screens. Let's make a resolution that we're going to read more. We're going to slow down and read more. And here's a quote from Jeff Deutsch. I may, I may have time for this. He's, he's writing about the act of reading. He writes, Engagement with books provokes an internal dialogue, a shuffling of hunches, assumptions, and prejudices, bringing texture and insight to the far reaches of our ignorance. I love that phrase. The ability to question our own beliefs, to dwell in uncertainty, empathy, or curiosity, to pursue knowledge, beauty, and meaning unstintingly so that we might make our best attempt at understanding and to continually put ourselves in spaces that will challenge, not just echo, our assumptions is an act of citizenship as much as it is our own individual reward. And he continues at the very end of the book, his vision for the future. Jeff writes, my hope is that we, this society struggling to be born, will recall the most important debts, those debts beyond the currency of the banks and financiers, and acquit ourselves of them by building models and systems that allow the gifts we have received and those we create to subsequently pass to the next generation. And that's one reason I come and sit in this chair week after week, friends, because I believe in independent bookstores and I believe in independent radio stations, that what we do for the community is an act of citizenship, and I'm so proud to be a part of it. And I'm very happy to be starting up my next summer season in a week, and I hope you will be there with me on the greatest radio station in the world, 
WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County, and 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. I've got a quick uh, movie excerpt <laughs> from a movie that I happened to just watch that has a lot to say about independent bookstores. Don't make fun of me, friends. I actually like this movie. It's filmed in my neighborhood. It's called You've Got Mail. We're going to listen to an excerpt, and then we're going to go into a little bit of a song that I'm dedicating to my good friend, Joe Magasco. Have a great week, everybody, and please stay tuned for The Arbitrarium saying goodbye for the summer with a special two-hour show. Thanks for being with me, everybody. Construction's going well, and we should open on time, although Kevin and I are both a little concerned about the neighborhood response. Hey, this, this fabric on the couch, what is it? Does it have a name? Money. Huh? Its name is Money. Oh, Jillian selected it. <laughs> Good guess. Listen, I, uh, I have a, a sad announcement to make. Uh, City Books on 23rd Street, it's going under. <laughs> oh. Another independent bites the dust. On to the next. You're going to buy out their entire inventory of architecture and New York history for the new store? How much, son? How much you paying? Well, whatever it costs, it won't be as much as that exquisitely uncomfortable mohair episode there, which is now all over my suit. We're also going to have a section dedicated just to writers who've lived on the west side. As a shot to the neighborhood. Perfect. Keep those West Side liberal nut pseudo intellectual. Readers, Dad. Hearts, they're they're called readers. Don't do that, son. Don't romanticize them. It'll keep them from jumping down your throat. I'll say goodbye to all my sorrow and by tomorrow. I'll be on my way. Guess the Lord must be in New York City. I'm so tired of getting nowhere, seeing my prayers gone unanswered. I guess the Lord must be in New York City. your back door Ain't it wonderful to be Where I've always wanted to be For the first time I'll breathe free here in New York City The Arbitrarium, because inner peace is a patri-capitalist fantasy, and the only reasonable thing a woman can do now, is amass an anti-estrogenic cluster of meat, around her controversial guts, and train, for battle.
Just like that. Well, really, it had taken two weeks to lose it completely. She'd always been eccentric, but now she was passing. She believed very strongly in the principle, you are what you eat. So she experimented with water. She drank it. No food, no juice, just water for two weeks. She was convinced that since she would only be water, she could disappear at will. I saw her the night before she disappeared, and she was pretty lucid. She told me that she had lived forever, that she would never die, and that since she was born water, she must have been the iceberg that sank the Titanic, the heavy water used in making the hydrogen bomb, the basic element used with Kool-Aid in Jonestown, Guyana. I feel very guilty, she said. Her last words before she left were, When you see a gushing fountain, I'll be there. When you sip a glass of ice water, I'll be there. When there's a torrential downpour, 